Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us while people are walking in, and then we're going to get started. Father, we praise your name. We just want to lift you on high. Let's glorify you, Father. Thank you for what you've taught us so far this morning. Thank you for what you've taught us this week as we've been intentional about being in your word. God, would you move me aside and would you speak to us this morning? Would you teach us something new? Would you give us confidence in you, Father? Would you reveal to us your mercy and your justice? And God, would you help us with our unbelief? Would you give us the courage to put our wholehearted faith in you together? We love you, God, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have seen this movie? It's called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and it really is a very curious movie because it's about a man who's born as an old man and then ages in reverse. And as strange as it sounds, I think that this process describes my spiritual maturation process. You see, I have been maturing in reverse. I was practically born at church. My parents took me to my first church service when I was three days old. And then I proceeded to go to church three times a week, every week. I don't remember missing one until I graduated from high school. I trusted Jesus as my savior when I was nine years old and I was baptized soon after, but I didn't really comprehend the depth of my sin and the great mercy that I had received in Jesus Christ. I was motivated mostly by fear, but at that young age of nine, I made this decision that I was going to obey God. I was what people called a good girl, and I loved that title. I didn't mind that at all. The problem was that I was like an old woman in that nine-year-old's body because I hadn't recognized or lived through the depth of my sin in my own depravity, I didn't really cling to God's mercy for dear life. Instead, I believed that I was good in my own strength. I was self-righteous. I was unable to see that even the good things that I was doing, I was doing to earn something from God. And because I was so self-focused, I looked at others who weren't able to get it together and be as good as me, and I had very little compassion on them. I relied on my privilege. God's mercy was for me and for everyone else who worked hard to be good like me. And his judgment was for everyone else. But thank God, over time, he has shown me another way. Well, I think the Israelites had a similar struggle. They knew that they were God's chosen people. He had done some amazing things on their behalf, and it's been easy for them to develop a sense of privilege and confidence in themselves. Even after the humbling experience at Ai and the death of Achan and his family that Shelley 
taught us last week. I think that they're still, right now, as we enter Joshua 9, expecting a bloody romp over the rest of their enemies in Canaan. God's mercy was for them, and his judgment was for everyone else. They were like me. They needed a reminder of God's mercy. So in Joshua 9, Joshua, God extends kindness to an unlikely people, the Gibeonites. So I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to be reading a lot of text together today. Open to Joshua chapter 9, and here we're going to see that God shows mercy to those who act in faith. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 5. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions. I want us to stop right there. The Gibeonites were a specific subgroup of Canaan. They were the Hittites in that long list of ites that we just read. Gibeon was a capital city to a confederation of five small towns, and it was seven miles southwest of Ai. It was a very strategic city, Yet surprisingly, the Gibeonites were willing to surrender the fight to the God of Joshua and the Israelites. The text says that they acted with cunning, an interesting word. I want to show you the Hebrew word translated cunning. I can't pronounce it. And it can be translated cunning or guile. And those are both very negative kind of connotation words. But it can also be translated subtlety, or prudence, those are a little bit better. But finally, it can be translated wisdom, which is actually a very positive word. At first glance, the Gibeonites were deceptive. My Bible entitles this subsection, The Gibeonite Deception. But I wanna suggest to you that perhaps they were wise. It's remarkable to me that they would have believed that such a prudent plan would work. This crazy idea to disguise themselves as travelers from a distant land with worn out sacks and clothing and dry bread and wineskins. Perhaps they had heard the commands in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 15, and perhaps they took God at his word. Remember this, you had to look it up in your homework. This is Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 11. And 15, the law said to Israel, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. And then a little later, this is how you are to treat all of the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now it goes on to say right after that, but in the cities of the nations that God is giving you to include the Hivites, do not leave alive anything that breathes. And so it seems to me that maybe the Gibeonites had heard this and believed it. And so I wanna suggest that they acted wisely to travel from Gibeon to Gilgal, Israel's home base to pursue a covenant with Israel. 
Joshua and his men are very skeptical, but they continue to listen. Let's look back at the text at verse 8. The Gibeonites said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. And so they proceed to offer these men their dry, crumbly bread and their wine and the burst wineskins. And then look down in verse 14. So the men, the men of Israel, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. So I want to ask, what do you think motivated the Gibeonites? And hopefully you talked about this at your table, and I want you to feel free to disagree with me on this. But as I was confronted with the text, um, I really felt like God was impressing this upon me as I looked for clues at what motivated them. And so it starts off with them offering themselves as servants. That's a very low position. It's a sign of humility. Next, they testified to the magnitude of Yahweh's fame that has drawn them to visit the Israelites. They cited reports of his victories in Egypt and Sihon and Og, exactly like Rahab did in chapter two. While the other local kings were amassing for war, I think the Gibeonites demonstrated faith in God. Now look down at verse 24. This is where I get that. This is when they were giving an account for what they did to Joshua. They answered him in verse 24 and they said, because it was told to your servants for a certainty, that means without a doubt, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. I think they were demonstrating faith. They believed that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. And so, yes, Israel failed to seek counsel from the Lord here. And that's never good. I want you to hear me on that. It's never good not to seek counsel. I just think that we can't assume that if they had, that the Lord would have told them to destroy Gibeon. Perhaps he would have told Israel to show mercy to Gibeon just like he did to Rahab. They certainly weren't hiding a malicious attack. They didn't tell this lie so that they could encircle and, and, um, and attack Israel, but rather they were willing to be their servants. So Israel was tricked, no doubt, but God here responds with mercy. He never chastised Joshua for his decision to make a covenant of peace with Gibeon in verses 15 to 20. Even the curse that was handed to the Gibeonites reveals God's mercy in a section of text that's highlighting his judgment. So look down at verse 23. Joshua cursed them by saying, now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Sounds a little harsh, but look at their response in verse 25. And now... Behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them 
But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Is it a coincidence that the Gibeonites are now placed in a place of protection at the altar of the Lord, cutting wood for sacrifices and drawing water for their ceremonial washings? They're uniquely placed as servants in proximity to the worship and the adoration of a holy God. In 2 Samuel, we'll see that Saul attempts to annihilate the Gibeonites once again, and the Lord protects them. They certainly represent future Gentiles, who we know will have access to the outer courts of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, where they will encounter Jesus, who will change everything for them. Paul cites this change for the Gentiles, which includes you and me, in Ephesians 2, 18 to 20. He says, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So no longer lowly woodcutters and water carriers in the periphery of the sanctuary. In Christ, Gentiles have full access to the Father, relating to him not as servants, but as fellow citizens of God's kingdom and part of his family. God extended mercy to the Gibeonites as he points us to Christ. Well, in chapter 10, we see another attribute of God's character. God demonstrates righteous judgment. God is righteous, period. He's the standard of righteousness, and he has the right to judge or to make decisions at his discretion. We have to believe this in faith because it's about to get really bloody and really violent again. God demonstrates his judgment on a people who have had a very long time, Rhonda helps us to see this, at least 600 years to repent and to turn to God. So judgment will be displayed here in chapter 10 over the enemies of God. In chapter 10, verses one to seven, we see that fear is really brewing amongst those other five area kings. They fear this seismic shift in the balance of power now because central Canaan, Jericho, Ai, and Gibeon are now under Israel's control and they control the central major highways. And so these kings are worried and they band together to fight against Israel. And Joshua is convinced to leave Gilgal and to come up to the hill country to fight along with all of these mighty men of valor. But I want you to notice in verse eight, I hope you talked about this at your table, that the subject shifts here in verse eight from Joshua and these mighty men to the Lord. And all the verbs in this section of text are going to be attributed to God rather than to Joshua and to the fighting men. So I'm gonna be reading from the New American Standard Bible uh, from verse eight. I'm gonna try to track the verbs in this section of the text. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal and the Lord confounded them 
before Israel. And he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled from before Israel, while they were on the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now this was a powerful display of God's judgment. There's no mistaking who was in charge here and who was doing the fighting. It was God. He was capable of inflicting this kind of destruction. But what blows me away even more as I consider this is that the same powerful God would ultimately make his power known in the meekness of a baby in a manger. A warrior who would lead his people not by the same fighting presence that we see here, but rather by taking the blow of the largest stones that this earth could throw. I love how Isaiah speaks of Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, just like those rocks coming down on the people. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Well, not only was God's judgment here enacted over the enemies of God, but also over the cosmos itself. Let's look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of of Ahijon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So God made a decision, a judgment over the sun and moon here, causing them to stand still as he fought for Israel. Now how this happened, I have no idea. Probably the best explanation after I read lots of them was to simply take Joshua 10 at face value. God performed a miracle here. But God the Son was also involved. And I want us to think about that. I love how the Hebrew writer reminded us in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So perhaps it was Jesus' word that suspended the Son. Interestingly, Israel's enemies here would have worshiped the sun and the moon. So this miracle clearly affirmed to them that the Lord God was the true God. The Amorite gods, they were powerless to aid their cause as God, as the God of Israel, moved heaven and earth, quite literally, to grant his people victory. One thing that seems kind of interesting in the text is that our author, to me, seems more amazed that God heeded the voice of a man than that he actually controlled the sun and the moon. It is miraculous that God hears the plea of Joshua and responds with this kind of display of power. But for us, only through Jesus is this reality true. 
Hebrews 7 reminds us that Jesus became our high priest before God, always making intercession for us. We pray in his name and the Father responds. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he hears you? That he's able to move heaven and earth for his glory and for your good if you'll just cry out to him? Well, once again, just like um, this has been happening all throughout the book of Joshua, God gives his people unique symbols of victory that point them to a future Messiah. So in verses 15 to 21 of chapter 10, Joshua and Israel return to Gilgal, but the five kings run and hide in a cave. Joshua sends his men out to all the cities that are represented by those kings, and he wipes them out. But then Joshua does something really unique, right? It's kind of disturbing. Uh, Look at verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight." So this first sign is kind of weird, right? It's a sign of authority over all of Israel's enemies to have these men, Joshua's men, come and put their feet on the necks of these kings. But this sign points uniquely to our Messiah, to a future Messiah who, Paul will say in Ephesians 1.23, God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. And then let's look down at verse 26. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. So Joshua follows up this feet on the next sign with this violent exclamation point, right? These five kings were hung on trees and put in a cave where large stones cover the cave's mouth to this day. Even this uniquely points forward to Jesus because we have a king who was hung on a tree and placed in a cave where a large stone covered its mouth, but it's not there today because he's risen just as he said he would. Well, in chapter 10, verses 28 to 43, we have this final mention of God's judgment. It's a long list of all the cities conquered in the southern conquest of Canaan. It recaps those five cities of the kings that we just read about, and then several more. Here's this long list, and it's hard to read through lists like this sometimes, right? 
But this list is there to help us understand what the author claims in verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all of their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. So God's judgment over the cities of Canaan was consuming and thorough. This hyperbolic language that he left nothing breathing was used to emphasize that this southern conquest was complete. In Christ, God's final judgment is just as shocking, just as violent, and just as complete. But that judgment was poured out on himself, on God the Son, Jesus Christ, once and for all mankind. Jesus said of himself in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son. And a little later, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So God's righteous judgment fell fully on Jesus Christ. He paid the death penalty that sin required. So God was merciful to us and just to him at the same time. As I look back over my life, it's only as I've been maturing in reverse that I've really come to understand and experience this truth. My sin, past and present, required this kind of violent destruction. The gospel wasn't just my starting point, It informs every aspect of my daily walk. Every day, I am 100% dependent upon the mercy and the justice that God continuously shows me in Jesus Christ. That self-righteous, independent Amy is dead. I'm alive by the Spirit, free to love and to serve as an overflow of this grace as a part of God's people, the church. Last Christmas, my friend Sarah Beale gave me a set of scripture cards. It's a really neat little set where the whole, all of the scriptures were personalized with my name in them. And I took one of those little cards out and I put it on my bathroom mirror to remind me that my faith is becoming more and more childlike every day. And so this is from 2 Timothy 1.9. And it says, God has saved you, Amy, and called you to live a holy life, not because of anything that you've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to you in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the ways that you show us your mercy and your judgment in the same text of scripture and how you revealed to us that you were merciful and just when you took that penalty for our sin. And we just claim, God, just with gratitude, that the blood of Jesus continuously purifies us from all unrighteousness, that we are dependent 100% on him to live holy lives. 
God, I recognize this. I thank you for teaching me. I thank you for breaking me. And I thank you, Lord, um, that you're making your glory known through your church. Thank you for, um, thank you for this group of women who encourage me and, and build me up and keep me accountable. And God, I just pray that we would do that for each other more and more. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>